The decades-long evolution and growth in easily accessible brokerage platforms have created a self-reinforcing cycle of low attention span investors that are also now pulling even the deepest and most steadfast investors down the rabbit hole. Plus, the rise in popularity of mean stock investing certainly has pulled investor attention spans away from traditional analysis and reprogrammed us to constantly look for the next big move. On today's show, we'll explore why the speed and magnitude of stock movements causes us to fall victim to classic investor biases precisely when we need to elevate ourselves above the noise, and we argue that deep work is more important than ever for traders. You're listening to the Option Alpha Podcast from OptionAlpha.com, where we show you how to make smarter trades, learn how the stock market really works, and generate consistent monthly income. Monthly income. Now, your host and head trader at OptionAlpha.com, Kirk Duplessis. Hey everyone, this is Kirk here again from OptionAlpha.com, working every single week to make this the most popular investing podcast offered online because it's based on one thing and one thing only, and that's helping you consistently play smarter trades. So again, thanks so much for tuning in today. Today's episode number 208, we're going to be talking about the importance of deep work for traders. And deep work is a term that has been loosely thrown about for a number of years now, but was more recently popularized by the book Deep Work by the name of the title by Cal Newport. Great book. We'll have it linked in the show notes, optionalpha.com slash show 208. Again, that's just the number 208. Again, optionalpha.com slash show 208. But I want to take a little bit of a different twist and a little bit of a different look at how we can use and how we can implement deep work as traders, how we can use this concept of deep work that Cal Newport basically presented in his book and how we can apply it to our own trading psychology, into our own routines and habits that we form as traders and investors. And I think it's first important that in order to get to the point where we talk about deep work, we actually have to have a really good understanding of how we got to this stage as investors, even just as the retail trading crowd, air finger quotes, how we got to this point in the trading history. And so I want to go back just a little bit and kind of walk us forward and talk about the history, a little bit of brokerages and access to markets, just on a very high level surface level so that we kind of set the stage for why we continue to fall into our own self-created traps as it comes to trading and when it comes to trading psychology and investor biases. So let's rewind the clock a little bit and we go back many decades and obviously access to markets even 30 or 40 years ago was nothing like we have now. But at that point, usually if you wanted to get access to markets, you wanted to make a trade, you wanted to do some sort of investment, you had to call a broker or a local shop or a local bank or a local institution. You had to, in some cases, physically walk into the place before you could even call. So the ability to call a broker was probably a leap forward from actually physically walking in and making a trade or placing an order, which obviously didn't get to the market the split second that you walked in, or even the trades that you placed over the phone didn't get to the market as quickly as they get to the market now. Now, clearly jumping forward a little bit in time here, you get to the point where you go through this phase where investors can call and make trades over the phone, and you get to the point where investors now have access themselves. They're starting to get online web-based access to trading. This was really the revolution of kind of the E-trades of the world, where now you had the internet and the accessibility of markets now being brought directly to retail investors. Now retail investors no longer had to essentially go through some sort of intermediary or middleman directly, and it was a really clunky, heavy process 
but now you could go to the markets yourself. You could be your own captain of your ship when it comes to your investments and you could get access to the markets quickly. It still wasn't as easy and as fast and frictionless as some of the broker platforms make it today, but it certainly was at that time a quantum leap forward in access to markets around the world. And from that point forward until basically about now, we've had just an ever-growing and increasing speed at which you could not only gain access to the markets, but also trade and how quickly you could place orders. The friction between placing an order and getting it to the market has basically collapsed, right? And so we've gone through this little brief history of access to markets. And basically, if you zoomed out really far, what you have is you have access to markets being controlled and centralized decades and decades ago, where it was very hard, very cumbersome process to get to markets. And then you had access to markets via certain types of technology, like the telephone, and you could then start to create these links between public markets and the retail crowd investor. And now what you have is you have basically almost no friction between access to markets and the retail investing crowd. During this entire time, we've also had the collapse of commissions. We've seen this more recently in the last couple of years where most brokers are going to zero or practically at zero. Again, I feel like this trend will continue. All brokers everywhere at some point will be zero commissions. It's just the end game of where this is going. But originally you had really steep commissions, very high fees associated with this. With good, bad, or indifferent was a barrier to entry in some cases, but also in many cases maybe was a reason why people stayed in their investments for a long time. Because if you had this load, you know, front end load fee to get into a fund or a mutual fund, you might stay into in the fund longer because you know you already prepaid this fee. It's already wrapped up in this and now you can amortize it over a longer period of time. So not saying that fees are bad, great, different, just it is what it is. That's the game that's changed. Now there's commissionless brokers. Practically everyone's commissionless. If you're not close to commissionless, you're probably at some minimal threshold, very close to zero. So now you've had a history of markets being more accessible than ever. You've had commissions dropping faster than ever. And you've also had the speed at which people can get access to the markets as now really frictionless. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on your watch in some cases. If you have an iWatch or some of these other things, you can get access to the markets. So the reason I say all of this and paint this picture is because I think for some investors and certainly for traders, we've created our own trap. We're basically victims of the industry that we're in. And we've facilitated this to some degree as investors and as retail clients where we want commissionless trading. We want to pay no commissions. We want access on our phone and on our watch and everywhere else. And so by our actions and our desires and our wants and the demand that we had as a group in whole, we basically forced all of the industry to change and basically shift to a frictionless market where you can get access to markets and it's you know virtually costless. That created our own trap. Our own trap of now being, in some cases, I look at us being victims of our own success in changing an industry to a certain degree that now we fall victim to our own classic investor biases faster and faster and faster. We follow all of the meme stocks and rallies and have no concept of fundamental analysis, right? We follow every trend, every chart pattern, everything, every indicator, every movement, and the duration of our trading continues to collapse 
faster and faster. Rather than holding on to positions for years and years or even decades in some cases, it's almost seen that if you hold on to a position too long, that you're taking on too much risk. And so many people try to make moves faster, try to chase hot moves faster. They try to wake up and hunt for trades. And it's almost this archaic, I guess you could say, like mentality of hunting for something and having to kill that trade today or tomorrow. And once you have that one quick win, that one quick trade, that hot stock that takes off and you make X percent, you're on the hunt again the next day. And now we get into this vicious cycle where we become hunters of trades rather than investors. It's always this idea of where can I find my next meal as a trader? And so we get caught up in all the meme stocks because not only is it potentially fun and interesting and gives you something to talk about, but the problem is none of it is sustainable. So I think the problem that we have as investors, and we should all realize this, myself included, is that as great as this industry is that it's shifting and changing, it also presents its own challenges to us if we're not aware of it. If we don't pay attention and zoom out and take a step back from what's happening and don't realize that the environment that we're trading in and the markets that we're trading in now have altered our behavior as investors and will continue to alter our behavior. And we should take the best pieces and try to remove and basically get rid of the worst pieces of what this industry has done as it's changed us as investors. And the reason that this is so important right now is because if you think about all of the more popular trading strategies and trading methodologies, at least certainly the ones that get the front headlines everywhere you go, they're unsustainable. A lot of these things are not only just unsustainable, but they're almost unrealistic if you were to talk rationally about strategies, about the idea of waiting for a crowd or a group of somebody out there to start pumping a stock and then try to jump on and get off before you get crashed. I mean, the logic behind this is just absolutely crazy. And so there has to be a better way to go about this. Not to say that you can't have some fun with a little bit of your money and play and do whatever you want to do, but it certainly shouldn't be the bulk or even near anywhere close to the bulk of what you do. You know, I almost sometimes equate this to financial drugs where we get this little hit of a quick win or a quick rally in a security or a big move that we were expecting. And it happens in a really short period of time. So all of our excitement that would usually occur over many months or weeks or even years in a position that goes up 20, 30% is now collapsed and consolidated into a very short time period. And it's like a financial drug. And unfortunately, as retail trading drug addicts, then we need bigger hits and quicker hits to stay active and to stay engaged. And that's what I feel like a lot of people do is they're looking for their next financial hit when it comes to trading. And that, of course, is an unsustainable outcome and certainly not a habit that you want to start to develop and feed in your own investing career. So now let's shift a little bit. Okay, we've set the groundwork. We've laid the foundation, hopefully. So let's talk about deep work, why it's important, and how we can start to implement some deep work philosophies in our own trading and in our own investing that we do as retail traders. So first of all, we have to describe what is deep work and why is it important. So for us, deep work is long periods of uninterrupted thinking. Now, this is really tough. This means that you have to basically get into a distraction-free, concentrated environment. 
that allows you to push yourself beyond your cognitive limits that you've set right now. I can tell you from experience, this is incredibly hard to set up. This takes a lot of effort, a lot of planning. It takes turning things off, which sounds super easy, but it's actually not. A lot of people go through months and months. I think there was a stat out there. I have to pull it up, but basically like the average iPhone like stays on for like months and months at a time, right? The average phone, like they don't turn, you don't turn them off. I I don't too, right? Like we just keep them on, we charge them at night and they just stay on, right? But it's actually planning and making a priority out of creating an environment where you can do deep work. And deep work doesn't always mean physically working on something. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to write or read or listen. It just means sometimes that you have to be in an uninterrupted state where you can just think critically for a long period of time, not 20 minutes, not 30 minutes, hours at a time. You know, it's funny, I, whether you're religious or not, a lot of priests and a lot of religious figures, they they go on these silent retreats all the time. In fact, I know our priest at our church, that he does it all the time. He goes on silent retreat and I asked him, what do you guys do there? He's like, we just stay silent. We just, we think, we just meditate. We, you know, just get, our, get ourselves lost in our own thoughts and kind of organize things. And I thought to myself, wow, that's so incredible that you can actually get time to do that. So as investors and traders and moms, dads, husbands, wives, all of our different things that we are in life, we have to find time to think critically for a long period of time about what we're doing, why we're trading, why we're trading, what we're trading, how we're going about it, the strategy that we're using, why we think it works, how we might react to certain environments. We have to give ourselves that space to start thinking. This allows you then to get to the second, third, and fourth order effects of your trading strategy and your ideas, which I don't think is where people ultimately get to if you don't make time for deep work in trading. So first order effects of trading might be something like I make a trade and I make money on the trade. I buy something, it goes up and I make money. Okay. We can all understand that. That's about where the thought process ends. But now the second order effect or third or fourth order effect might be what happens after that? Is that sustainable? Could I do that over and over again? Could I automate that in some way? Is this going to be an edge that will be around for a long time? Or is this some fly-by-night, little quick meme stock or growth stock or pump stock or some event that happened that I just happened to catch the right side of? And if we don't give ourselves the space and the cognitive space specifically, I'm not even talking about physical space from disconnecting from everything, but the cognitive space to actually think about the second, third, fourth order effects of all of your ideas then it's highly likely that you'll burn out from what you're doing now and you'll just fall back into the same pitfalls and traps of other investors and classic investor biases that we've found again and again and again. So when we look at the difference between, and just to help give you some examples of this and continue to drive this home, if we look at something that is shallow work, so not deep work, but really shallow surface level work, this is stuff that's non-cognitively demanding. It's logistical style tasks. And you can often do this while you're distracted. I think this is where a lot of people have fun, air finger quotes, with trading. They look at trading and particularly they look at really hot stories or hot moves in a stock. And they think that it's 
really deep analytical analysis that's going on and they could probably tell a really good story. But when you actually scrape everything away, you find that it's incredibly shallow investing work that they're doing. They're just riding on the back of another tip or idea or thing. And I know this to be true because what happens is, is you can do this type of investing while distracted. See, that to me is the difference between shallow work that you do as an investor and deep work that you do as an investor. The shallow work that you do as an investor, the things that you really haven't given the cognitive space to think critically about at the second, third order level of effects are things that you can do while distracted middle of the day, middle of the week type investing activities. And I know this to be true because this is exactly what a lot of people do where they just see something online, they read a quick blurb about it, and then they do it, right? They read something, they say, oh, this thing is blowing up, this stock is going to the moon, this whatever thing is going to you know, go up by 20%, here's the story, okay, I get it, boom, I invest, done. That's shallow level work investing. Doesn't mean it can't work. Certainly can work for a lot of people, but is it sustainable? Is it the right type of investing for you? Is it how you want to build your legacy and build your wealth is on the piggyback of that thing and hoping you hunt and gather and find those ideas consistently over time? Because these types of shallow investing ideas you can do while you're distracted. It takes no cognitive effort. It's not demanding, but it's not also easy to recreate and to create consistency out of. And so those are the types of things that you want to avoid, like the plague as an investor and as a trader. Avoid things that you can do while distracted. In some cases, that could be a benchmark for you. Can I do this quickly and easily while distracted? And if it is, maybe it's something I don't want to do. Shallow work also involves piggybacking on other trades trade hunting. You know, the trade hunting thing I think is so fascinating. I've talked about this so many times, but it's so true. And I used to be a victim of it too, where it's like you go out and you hunt for a trade every day, right? Like when you're firing up your broker platform or your phone app or whatever it is, it's like you're walking into the proverbial investing forest and you're trying to hunt for your next meal, right? You go through stock after stock after stock. You're checking indicator after indicator. You're checking news. You're checking all these things that could lead you down the path like a hunter to finding your next trading meal. And you feel like in some cases that if you don't find something today that you failed, that you're going to go hungry as an investor, as a trader. And so you hunt deeper and deeper and you try to find connections that don't really exist or you try to associate things together that have no real association in reality. And so that really is a dangerous mentality that you can get into versus being a farmer as a as an investor, going out and planting your ideas and letting them mature and taking time with them and having patience with them to play out. That doesn't mean that you just sit back and relax. No, you still have to tend to the fields and you got to pull the weeds and you got to, you know, plant the crops and water and right you have to do all of those things, but it's a longer term mentality that you have. And I also think that one of the most important things about getting into a deep work state or having time in your weekly or monthly schedule for deep work as it relates to investing and trading is the ability to correctly cross-reference the important elements of trading. I think that when you're in a shallow work state or shallow trading state, however you want to define it, you don't have enough time to cross-reference important elements 
or critical factors in investing. Actually, in show 170, I think it was show 170, back on the podcast, we went through the five critical factors for investing. Persistence, pervasive, robustness, right? Those things you don't have time to correctly analyze when you're moving so fast and trying to hunt and gather trades versus when you give yourself time to fully analyze a trading strategy or a methodology or framework, you can now start to use that as even just a very simple checklist for your trading strategy. Does it meet these five critical factors for me? And if you don't have the room and capacity to give yourself that deep work state where you can go through those, then it's probably not an investing strategy you want to deploy right now until you can verify, right? How can you objectively look at everything you are looking at if you only give yourself two minutes at a time? I just don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to objectively look at a strategy or or an investing philosophy or an ideology if you only give yourself a two-minute quick hit of financial drugs. It's just not sustainable. So you have to give yourself the room and, again, more importantly, the cognitive capacity and space to analyze this stuff. So how can you do this as a trader? So let's kind of try to pull this together a little bit more. We've talked about the history. We've talked about obviously like where we get caught up and how we fall into our own pitfalls. And I'm sure a lot of this sounds very familiar. We've all done it, myself included. We've all gotten caught up in this and that and this stock running or that security or this thing, right? Like we've all done it. We've all been there. So how can we get around this? How can we create a level of deep work as an investor and as a trader? One, I think you need to recognize the need for it and schedule time. So this is one thing that I do. I think it's critically important, not only for just your work as an investor, but also in whatever discipline or career that you're in right now is scheduling time for deep work. And now more than ever, if you use a bunch of these tools that are out there for communication, like our company uses Slack, we basically put a notification for anybody who's in a deep work state that they're not to be bothered, that they're in a deep work state, that they're specifically turning off notifications, closing down everything so they can focus for hours at a time on exactly what they're trying to accomplish. I think as a trader, you have to do this too. You have to schedule time in your schedule where you go to a different location, potentially we'll talk about this at the end here too, but where you go someplace else and schedule time for specifically deep work. Number two, you've got to cut off all distractions, forcefully if necessary. I think this is super important and it's very hard to do in today's world because we're so easily distracted. A text message here, a notification there, a post about this, an email. You have to forcefully cut off distractions. You have to close down applications. Actually go to the place on your phone where you can turn it off. I'm not sure many people know this. There is a way to turn off your phone. You can actually physically turn the thing off and then nobody can distract. You have to do this if you want to get into a deep work state. Number three, don't plan too much at first, just go with the flow. I think that getting into deep work and exercising your cognitive capacity to expand, to get to the second, third, fourth order effects of trading, I think it's like a muscle and it's going to take some repetition for it to get stronger. So my suggestion is don't go into it at first with a lot of planning. I think I've failed at this a number of times when I set up a lot of deep work times and sessions 
where I had all these things I wanted to accomplish because I'm just that type of personality where I get a list and I'm like, okay, if I get into deep work, this is what I want to do in this session. I want to do this and this and this and this. That was totally the wrong approach. Now, when I get into a deep work state, I have probably one objective, one thing I want to think about. And I just let my brain think critically about that in every direction. I write a lot of notes. I don't organize the notes. I don't try to make sense of the notes right away. Sometimes I just let my brain wander and let it think. Give it the space to just think critically. And if I don't need to write notes, I just sit there and think and think deeply about what happens if and what if that was true, what, what else would be true, right? That's what you need to do. Number four for me is mornings might work best. I say this because it works best for me. That doesn't mean it necessarily works best for you. You certainly have the most energy and the most fuel in your brain in the morning. That's when you haven't been taxed all day with all the decisions you make and all the things you have to think about. I know that some people say that they like to do this at night. That doesn't work well for me. It might work well for you, but at night, I feel like I've already made 10,000 decisions during the day that I don't have the cognitive energy to continue to think critically. So I find that I do my best deep work in the mornings. That's usually when I get up and I do all of my work in the morning when the world basically is sleeping. Many people know because you see me in the community in the forums. If I'm usually responding, it's typically responding early in the morning because that's when I get my best work done. Number five, use primitive old school tools for notes and ideas. I know we all love great apps and great things on our phones and desktops and recorders, but I can't tell you how awesome it is to just have a notebook, a journal, and a pen or a pencil and just use that. Some of my best ideas, I feel like some of the biggest breakthroughs that I've had have come from just pen and paper. So don't be afraid to leave all the electronics behind and go for the old school primitive tools for notes and ideas. And finally, the last one is shift your environment. Environment causes habits. This is one that I didn't really think about affecting me as much as it does, but I can tell you it's been an amazing shift in my productivity and how awesome a deep work session might be for me when I shift my environment. Sometimes I shift my environment to different locations multiple times to spur different creative ideas. I think it's still got to be a quiet place. It's got to be a place with distractions that are limited or distraction-free, but you have to shift out of an existing environment. You almost have to curate an environment for deep work specifically because the environment you're in causes your normal habits to occur. If I stayed home, my normal habits would be to get the kids up in the morning and get them fed and get them ready for school, right? But if I am going to do a deep work session, I can't do my deep work session at home because my normal habits will naturally take over. It's just part of what will happen if I stay at home. So I have to go someplace else. I have to go to an office, to a quiet coffee shop. I have to go someplace out in the environment and just sit on the edge of the truck, (laughs) something else where you can shift your environment. And I can't tell you how important that is. So if you do find that that's important, love to see photos of where you go or what you do. That'd be really cool. You can share them obviously with the team. So I hope this podcast has really helped you get a better sense of how you can start to use deep work in your trading, potentially use deep work in all the other parts of your life as well. It doesn't have to be specific to trading, but since it's a podcast for traders and investors, we talk about it here. But 
I think it's really important to recognize that we have found ourselves as a retail trading community, victims of our own success in getting an entire industry to shift and succumb to our demands and needs. And while that's been great on many fronts, it has caused us to not think as critically and as deep as we should as traders and investors. And my goal is that this podcast just slightly nudges you in a different direction and changes your trajectory on how you approach the markets, how you think critically about trading strategies and trading philosophies, and how you can start to incorporate deep work as part of your habits and routines as a trader. As always, we'll have a ton of notes, links, and resources for you. Just head on over to the show notes page, optionalpha.com slash show 208. Again, that's just the number 208, optionalpha.com slash show 208. And now our favorite part of the show, Trader Q&A, where we ask a question from one of our current members about options trading. Got a question you'd like to ask Kirk to answer live on the air? Just head on over to optionalpha.com forward slash ask and hit the record button to leave a message. That's optionalpha.com forward slash ask. And now here's today's question. Hi, Kirk. I'm Pavel. I'm from Poland. I've been trading for around one year. My question is, is there any difference between trading of out-of-the-money credit spreads and in-the-money debit spreads when the probability of success in both of the cases is around 70%. Is there any advantage of trading one strategy over the second one? Thank you for explanation. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, great question, and thank you so much for submitting it. So I think this one is really interesting because I think that the concept of trading something with a 70% chance of success is interesting by itself, but then that you can approach it in two different ways. In this case, you suggested trading a credit spread that's out of the money or an in-the-money debit spread. When you think about trading these two different strategies, although they might have the same probability of success, the makeup and the reaction of the strategy is really where the differences are. So in the case of the out-of-the-money credit spread, you're going to have a reaction to volatility completely different than you would have in the -the in-the-money debit spread example. So If you have your credit spread that's out of the money and volatility goes down, that benefits the out of the money credit spread faster than the offset that you're going to have for the in the money debit spread. Now, it does depend a little bit on how close your strikes are and if your strikes are close or if they're far apart for each of these strategies. But generally, you're going to have volatility behaving differently for the two strategies, one being in the money and one being out of the money. Same thing happens for time decay. Time decay is going to more positively impact the out of the money credit spread because you're a net option seller, and it's going to negatively impact the in the money debit spread. It also happens to be that the in the money debit spread is going to incur a little bit additional risk associated with early expiration or early assignment of part of the position where you're not going to necessarily have that right away, especially if the out of the money credit spread stays out of the money you don't really have that risk of early assignment and early exercise that could happen for one of the legs. So that would be the real main differences that I see. Volatility, I see time decay or theta decay, differences between the strategy. And then of course you have your expiration and assignment risk slightly higher for the in the money position because it's already in the money heading into expiration. You do have other risks associated with those like gamma risk associated with the different positions as well. But the main ones are the main ones that we just talked about. Again, the volatility that's going to be different, the theta decay or time decay, and the assignment or exercise risk associated with those positions. So great question. Again, if you want to get your question answered here on the podcast, simply head on over to optionalpha.com slash ask, 
and click the big red button in the middle of the screen and leave me a private voicemail. We need more of these questions to get queued up for the next series of podcasts that we're going to be doing. So please get your question in. If you haven't had a chance to ask your question, now is the time. And you could do it just like Pavel did here right from Poland. You can go over to optionalpha.com slash ask, click the big red button, leave me a private voicemail, and we'll get it queued up for the next segment. Thanks for listening to the Option Alpha podcast. If you liked what you heard, please drop by iTunes and leave a rating or comment. Plus, you can get everything. Free email updates for future shows, transcripts, video tutorials, case studies, and more. Just visit our website at optionalpha.com. All right, so that's a wrap for this week's podcast episode here on Option Alpha. But before you go, please let's keep the conversation going. Please connect with us on your favorite social media platforms and let us know what questions, ideas, or thoughts came to mind after listening to today's show. Like I said earlier in the show, if you do have a place where you go and do your deep work and your deep thinking, we'd love to see it. Take a picture of your space, take a video of your space, tag us, add us, mention us. We'd love to see where you do your deep work and deep thinking as a trader and investor. Also want to let you know that we do have a ton of upcoming stuff happening throughout the community this week and next week inside of Option Alpha. We've got some new podcasts or new podcasts that are going to be coming, of course, next week, but also we've got some new bot workshops that we're scheduling. So always get the latest info by heading over to optionalpha.com and making sure that you're subscribed to all of our email updates to get notifications on upcoming events, podcasts, and latest blogs and research that we're publishing every single week. As always, I truly hope you enjoyed today's show. Got at least one thing out of it that you can apply right now to help you consistently play smarter trades. Until next time, happy trading.